0: Hello, you're tuned to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Welcome to the program, we're pleased to have you join us. Think
1: about these things, finances, food and sex, are they evil? Let me ask that question differently. Can they be used for an evil purpose? Yeah, clearly. And that highlights that evil is nearly always the misuse or abuse of something that God intended for a good purpose.
0: If you send your child to Boy Scouts, you would naturally expect him to behave in a way that is consistent with what he's taught at Boy Scouts. It's not really a leap then to expect that someone who comes under the instruction of God's word in a church would behave in a way that's consistent with God's word. In fact, the church, specifically the teaching of God's word, has an extraordinary impact on people's behavior, enough to influence culture. Let's join Dr. Corbett now as he continues in his series, Dear Timothy, exploring how we're to behave in the household of God.
1: Let's pray. Father, as we open your word now, I pray, God, that your word would grip our hearts and that, Father, we would see you in your word. Please, Lord, help us to hear your voice. I pray in Jesus' name. If you've got your Bibles, please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We are continuing through the Dear Timothy, a father's final words to his son. This is a a depiction of the Apostle Paul's relationship with his protege, Timothy. And we're going to be looking at how to behave in the household of God. It'll be grounded in a moment in chapter 3 and verse 15. And I want to ask a couple of questions before we embark on this journey. Here's the first question. Why does Paul refer to the church as the household of God? That's the first question. I just want that question to hang. Second question. Why does Paul lay such an insistence and importance on biblical teaching whenever the church gathers? Why does Paul see a link between what is taught in a church and a believer's lifestyle choices why does he see that link how does he see that link and my final question which through the course of this presentation I hope we can answer each of these questions with so many expectations placed on pastors what does Paul charge pastors to focus on and why and I was reflecting on this one in particular this week as a, as, I were, as I was inviting pastors to come to an event that I want to put on about the Will Graham event. And a number of the churches that I used to be able to write to the pastor and contact the pastor don't have a pastor anymore. And there's churches that have been here for over 100 years in our city that now no longer have a pastor. So with that in mind, let's turn now to chapter 3 and verse 15. This is what Paul says. If we were to read verse 14, it just bridges into this. I hope to come and see you soon. Paul writes to Timothy, but I am writing these things to you so that, and here's verse 15. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of all the truth. So we're going to come back and have a look at some of those things there. But the church is described as a household by Paul. We recently did a series on the household of God and we saw that this language is based on the Greco-Roman household. It's a, not just a, It does have architecture to it, but it's also a structure of people within that architecture. It had a householder, who was responsible for providing for those in the household. And there could be perhaps as few as 20 people in that household, but there could have been, as there was in some instances, a couple of hundred people in that household. And the householder was responsible to feed them and protect them. In fact, there was tremendous benefits for belonging to a household. There was provision. You knew you were gonna get a meal. You knew that you were going to get clothes to wear. You knew that you were going to be protected. At night, the gates were locked. You had protection. There were servants on duty to make sure that you were protected at night. So that's a tremendous thing. This has a carryover into the church as well. When you're a part of a church, you're being prayed for by the pastors and elders. You're being prayed for by others in the church who, who pray. There's protection. There's provision, the provision of God's word the household, the Greco-Roman household gave someone an identity. They belong to the house of and we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul refers to certain householders and their household. The household of Stephanus, for example is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So it gave someone belonging, an identity belonging to the church, the household of God, gives a person a sense of this is where I belong. This is where I find my identity because I belong to this household and we belong to the household of God. And finally, it gave someone a sense of purpose and responsibility because everyone in the household, from the youngest child through to slaves and servants, all had a job. You might remember the architecture of the Greco-Roman household had two shop fronts right at the start, in beto- the gate was in between, but there were two shop fronts. They would open the shop front, they would sell food, craft, whatever, and everyone was responsible for being able to be a part of the contribution to the welfare of the household as well. So there's responsibility, and responsibility is good for your soul, believe it or not. Sometimes we think, particularly in churches, we think we, we have a, a gap, a leadership gap. We should find someone responsible to fill that gap. That's true, we should. We don't want an irresponsible person in that position. But sometimes giving someone an opportunity to be responsible actually causes them to become responsible. So that's what the household does. And that's why Paul uses that description to describe the church, the household of God. But the gospel, when Paul came to a town with Timothy and Silas and Barnabas, and they preached the gospel, it transformed this household. No longer was it like a hierarchical structure of the householder and down here was the lowest of servants. No longer was that the case. Because the household of God transformed each of these occupants into brothers and sisters equal in standing before God. Pretty, re- pretty amazing. Everyone's equal. But then the gospel also transformed the whole household from being not just a a thing of status for the householder. I mean, the more people he had, the greater his status was in society. But when the gospel came to that household, it was no longer the focus of the household to be about status or wealth or position in society. Their focus changed. And if we jump into chapter four and verse 10, we can see Paul flowing on from this thought where he describes the new priority for the household of God. He says this, For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Saviour of all people, especially of those who believe. In other words, Jesus Christ is the Saviour. Even if people don't receive him as Saviour, he's still the Saviour. He's the only possible Saviour. But he's really your Saviour if you turn to him in faith. That's what Paul's saying. And here he's saying that we strive and we toil to this end to bring people to believe in the Saviour. So the gospel transformed the entire focus of the household, which Paul describes now as the household of God. In Ephesus, Paul notes and tells us that they were a culture that believed in rather silly Myths. And we see this in chapter 1 and verse 4, where he says, Don't have anything to do with silly myths. He says it again in chapter 4, where he says that in Ephesus, people were persuaded by silly myths. And he tells the church to be countercultural. If this is the culture, be countercultural. Go against the tide. I was speaking with a young person this week about the possibility that we would see nearly every high schooler in our valley come to the Will Graham Youth event. And they scoffed, they said, it'll, it'll never happen. It can never happen. It will just never happen. And I'm thinking, you watch, watch. Watch what God does over the next 12 months as the level of prayer in our city reaches a height it has never reached before, ever, in the history of Launceston. Watch what happens. Let's be countercultural. So, the Apostle Paul describes the church as necessarily countercultural, not like the world, not like the culture. We don't put the best show in town on each Sunday because that's not our focus. Our focus is to bring people to see God. And that's what Paul says. We strive and we toil to that end, he says in chapter 4 and verse 10 because we've set our hope on the living God. Let's come back to verse 15. If I delay that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So the church is in the midst of a a culture that believed in the time of Paul writing to Timothy, silly things, silly things. I wonder what Paul would say today about people who say if a man thinks he's a woman, he's a woman and he can compete in female sporting events. I wonder if there's a a word that goes beyond the word silly in Greek that he would use to describe that idea because that's probably the word we would have to use to describe it as well. Our society believes lies. They believe lies. That if someone in the body of biological sex, of whatever they were born with, says that they are not that, that they are something other, then society just goes along with the lie. This is silly. And Paul, I don't know what, what their silly myths led to in his day, but he just calls them silly. It's the word that he uses. The central claim of Christianity, because the church is upheld as the pillar and buttress of not a truth but the truth what is that central claim the central claim is the identity and the work of Jesus we live in a culture that believes silly things about religion for example all religions are the same that's a silly idea all religions worship the same God that's a silly idea it can't be right And here Paul is saying, we the church uphold the truth. And what he does is very interesting. Rather than quote the prophets, rather than quote a fellow apostle, he cites a hymn. He quotes an early Christian hymn. It's found in verse 16 and it says this. And if you have a translation where the translators help you to see it's a hymn, they will set it up in your translation, indented, and you'll see it stands out different from the text because it's an ancient hymn. Here it goes. If someone wants to sing it, be my guest. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Man, it kind of sums up the whole gospel in one sense. And it's a song, an early song, an early hymn. Isn't it interesting? Paul is saying we the church uphold the central truth that all mankind needs to know. And he quotes a hymn. So isn't it, I find this fascinating. The early church used hymns to teach Christian doctrine. They used hymns to teach Christian doctrine. Uh, it was the uh australian preacher john dixon who complained to hillsong about the shallowness of their lyrics i don't know if you know this story he actually wrote a tweet and put it on facebook as well how shallow their lyrics were and he said for pete's sake why don't you give us something really worth singing and they said like what like the apostles creed for example and so they did we sing that song in our church now, we believe. That's the Apostles' Creed set to music, Hillsong did it. It went gold, that song went gold and they wrote John Dixon a letter. I don't think they sent him a check but they wrote him a letter saying thank you for the suggestion. He put it on Facebook, why not? Let's sing stuff and uh, Jeanette will tell you and now Tom will tell you that, that I'm a stickler for making sure that we don't sing silly songs. We try and sing stuff that has substance to it. I was really thrilled in our morning service. I was going home and on the way home, someone uh, sent me a message saying, you know that last song we did, All Hail King Jesus, that sounded completely different after you shared about the greatness of God in the message. And I thought, my job here is done. That was great. It was brilliant. Just a really good song. We see Paul is saying the church has got to uphold the truth. Here's the truth. All those points about Jesus actually target the errors, the two errors that were creeping into the church and had actually led some away. The two errors, Gnosticism and the errors of the Judaizers. Judaizers who say to become a Christian, you first have to become a Jew. Men, you must be circumcised. Women, You must know your place. And then you can become a Christian. Paul confronts those two errors in that song when you think about it. He was manifested in the flesh. The Gnostics said Jesus never came in the flesh. So when you read 1 John, you'll see that he's rebutting that idea as well. And then Paul does something really interesting. He's going to prophesy. Chapter 4 and verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says. Where's he getting that from? Because he's not quoting any Old Testament prophet. He's not quoting a song anymore. He's not referring to a fellow apostle. He is prophesying something that the Spirit of God has spoken to him about. And this is what he says. That in the later times, and there will be some people, let me jump in here. Some people will say, aha, he was prophesying about our day. No, he was prophesying about his day because it was the later time for the old covenant that was winding down. It was coming to an end. It was the last days, the latter days of the old covenant and new covenant. Now, it was, just, it was, it was going to be in a moment just the new covenant when God finally did away with the old covenant. And we see that in Hebrews 8.13. It says, the old covenant's been made obsolete and is about to be done away with. And he says this, in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. He's calling the errors of the Gnostics and the Judaizers the doctrines of demons. Man, this is strong language. Through the insincerity of liars, whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Here's a question, and I've heard people say this. So let me see if you've heard it as well. If you pray, yeah, it's powerful. But if you pray and fast, whoa, now that takes your prayers to a whole new level of power. I can imagine, Ali, you may have heard that in Nigeria. I can imagine that. Because it adds a human contribution to something that is, quite frankly God's business whether he answers our prayers no matter the level of content in our stomach please don't let me discourage you from fasting but don't think God is obliged to answer your prayer because you fast Ed Miller was a missionary to Argentina and he was preaching away, and he could only get a handful of people together. It was about five or six people. And he was frustrated. And he tells the story that no matter what he did, no matter what he tried, nothing broke through. And so he said, God, I am desperate for you to bring revival to Argentina, to do something here. We've got to see people come to know Christ. And I've only got five or six people here. I... I." I, I had visions of hundreds and thousands. And so he began to pray and fast. And he was, his commitment was a 40-day fast. He was doing okay for the first few days, plowed his way through, and he said, nothing happened. It was as if his prayers hit the ceiling and bounced back down. Nothing happened. And he went to God and said, what am I doing wrong? I'm doing everything I know how. I'm doing what they say in the books that you buy in Christian bookstores, which is to fast and pray when things aren't going right and nothing's going right. It just seems to be getting worse. God help. And he says he clearly heard the voice of God and he heard the spirit of God saying, heaven is moved by the blood of Jesus, not an empty stomach. His immediate response was, couldn't you have told me that on day one? (laughs) There are other reasons to fast, good reasons to fast. But not if you think it gives you some magical power over God himself. That's called witchcraft, not Christianity. Everything is to be received. If it's received, it says, with thanksgiving, by the word of God and prayer. So think about what Paul's just listed here he's listed they forbid marriage there's there's some question mark over sexual intimacy they forbid food No, they, they they challenge these things and their consciences are seared and it sounds as we read further into the epistle we'll see that it sounds like these teachers they were they were just charlatans And they were manipulating some of these wealthy, what appears to be wealthy, widows, as we all see as we make our way through 1 Timothy. So they were greedy for financial gain. They were teaching things they didn't even believe, insincere, liars. Think about these things, finances, food, and sex. Are they evil? Let me ask that question differently. Can they be used for an evil purpose? Yeah, clearly. And that highlights that evil is nearly always the misuse or abuse of something that God intended for a good purpose. Opioids have a great purpose, pain relief. But they can also, when misused and abused, produce great evil. Hmm. Sound teaching, sound biblical teaching, preached. Paul is going to say, counters these lies that the enemy was, was getting into the minds of some of these Christians. And Paul is addressing these things and he's telling Timothy, you've got to stand up and courageously, my words, not his, courageously preach against these things and do it by preaching the truth. So we see in chapter 4 and verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Here it is. Verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. I have said on numerous occasions, my main job as pastor is to help you to die well and the the best way i can do that is to help you to live well before you do because if you live well you will die well i have said in light of this that there may well be someone who comes into our church sunday morning sunday night and they hear the gospel and they walk out without receiving christ i'd be devastated but it happens all the time and i've sometimes said If you don't receive Christ, do do me a favour and do yourself a favour. In the last three seconds of your life, I'm not sure how you're going to figure that out, give your life to Christ and repent of your sins and ask him to be your saviour. And the frustrating thing for us is that God will indeed save someone who does that on the deathbed. Praise God. The frustrating thing for them is that they will get to heaven and they will discover how much they have missed out by not giving their life to Christ before and following Christ throughout their days. Paul says that in this next verse, verse 8. For while bodily training is of some value, being fit, good on you. But notice what he says. Godliness, which means being like Christ. Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come in eternity. The life you live now, if you live it for Christ, will stand you in good stead with God for the rest of your days. But in eternity... The level of godliness that you attain to in this life, you will take with you into eternity and have it forever. To me, that's a great motivation to fear God and to walk in the knowledge that the godliness that we attain to in this life is of eternal value. This is what Paul says to Timothy. Command these things. Let no one despise you for your youth but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Verses 11 and 12. So here's where I want to come down the home stretch of this section of Paul's epistle and talk about the biblical mandate for godly and effective pastoring. When I came here 27 years ago, and Judith who's here will remember me, and Kim and I coming here, I had people get very, very disappointed with me because I wasn't like the last pastor who made lots of house calls through the week regularly and often with the same people. And I wasn't doing that. I was having a different approach that the church wasn't about just us. It was about us doing that but reaching out as well. And it upset people. I had people leave in the early days because they weren't getting two or three visits a week from me. There was a group, uh, an HR group, that put together, using internet algorithms apparently, lots of ads put out by different churches looking for a pastor. And they collated the, the top eight things that churches look for when they look for a pastor, and they formulated what they call the perfect pastor list. Would you like to hear it? Number one, the perfect pastor is one who will be able to please everyone in the church and meets each church member's expectations. Number two, the perfect pastor speaks the truth, stands up for injustice, but never steps on anyone's toes. Number three, the perfect pastor Preaches an inspiring sermon every Sunday that makes you cry, laugh and think deeply about everyday life while still managing to get you out of the church service in under an hour. (laughs) Number four, the perfect pastor works from 8 in the morning until 10 at night doing everything from preaching sermons and sweeping the church. Number five, the perfect pastor is 36 years old and has been preaching for 40 years. (laughs) Number six, the perfect pastor has a burning desire to work with the youth and spends all his time with the senior citizens. Number seven, the perfect pastor smiles and has a keen sense of humour, all the while keeping a straight face that shows his serious dedication to all his tasks. And number eight, the perfect pastor makes 15 calls a day on church members spends every free moment evangelizing non-members and is always found in the church office when needed any wonder why some pastors get crushed psychologically under the expectations that people have when we read the last few verses in this chapter of paul's epistle to timothy in chapter 4 we read in verse 13 until i come devote yourself he's telling his charge this is how you, you pass the Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture.
0: That's all we have time for tonight. If you'd like to obtain a CD copy or premium download of tonight's discussion, please go to our website, findingtruthmatters.org, and select Dear Timothy, Part 6 from our online store. As we've heard tonight, sound biblical teaching, faithfully preached and practiced, counters the lies of culture. Coming under the instruction of God's word should have a profound effect on how we behave. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.